Lord, we thank you so much for the work of Jesus Christ, the hero of our story, the one who has showed us over and over and over what it looks like to love, to have joy, to be peaceful, to be kind, to be gentle, to be faithful, to have self-control, to be good. God, we want to be able to approach you today knowing that by ourselves we can do nothing. You've given us a brand new hope in life. Father, thank you so much for loving us. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everybody. We're so glad that you chose to be here. We want to welcome those who, they don't know why they, they decided to be here. I want to welcome those who said, I, I don't know what this whole thing about church is, but I do want to figure it out because there's something outside of me that I want to figure is better than what I'm doing right now. Something that's going on that I know is beyond what I can do on my own. And so today we're going to let you know that there is a story that's much, much more important than your story. And the thing is, is that whatever it is that you bring into this place today, God says, I love you. God says, I want you to have a, the best life that you possibly can. And I, and I believe on this stage, I'm telling you specifically that I think it's going to come from a relationship with Jesus Christ. We are told to humble ourselves over and over and over in God's word. And one of the most famous passages is from 2 Chronicles 7. It says this, if my people, that's us, who are called by my name as Christians will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and they turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and restore their land. I want you to know that he will forgive you and he will restore whatever is going on in your life. He will restore you and let you know him in such a magnificent way. God is not just a part of the story. He is the story. I hope you're ready to worship him with that.
your story. Is that our story together? As we look at Jesus Christ, this is our testimony. If I'm not dead, he's not done. Make sure we see this as everything we can today. And I saw Satan fall like lightning. I saw darkness run for Signs and wonders. I have resurrection power. Yes, I do. See the miracle that I just can't get over. My name is registered in heaven. Yeah, my praise belongs to you forever. Yes, it does. This is my testimony.
Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for only your own interests, but take interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. And that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth. And every tongue should declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory to God the Father. Let's pray together. Our Father, we know that you're in the room. For that, we're grateful. We know that we are here by your grace, and for that, we're grateful. And now we pray that the words of our mouths and the thoughts of our hearts will please you. In the name of Jesus, your Son, we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here, guys. Today we're going to wrap up a series that we've been on on the virtues that God's Holy Spirit is trying to cultivate in every single one of us Jesus followers. Today we're going to focus on humility. Humility. And I am probably the last one in the world that should be preaching this sermon, right? But first, a couple of all uh, jokes, a couple of jokes about humility and pride. Here's one. Ready? My late grandpa used to hate looking in a mirror was a humble man and a terrible driver. Come on, that was funny, guys. Come on. How about this one? Why is Pride Month in the summer? Because, as you know, pride comes before the fall. That's kind of funny. I don't care who you are, right? I mean, that's not bad. How about this one? Why was the cannibal lion so humble? Because he swallowed his pride. I know, it can be hard to swallow your pride, but sometimes a lion is just that hungry. All right, that's enough. Probably too many. Some of you guys know Vern Huber. He is our senior's pastor and does a lot of our pastoral care at, here at Capital City, but Vern has a terrible, terrible character flaw. In fact, he is delusional, all right? Now, I figure that some of his delusionability may be according, because of his age. He's just really, really old, right? way older than anybody else on the staff, way older than I am. But Vern believes, actually believes that he is more humble than I am, which is delusional, right? He, he'll race me to the door so that he can open it for me. I'll find another door. I won't go out that door. <laughs> when we go to a restaurant together, he'll leave a tip that's just a little bit bigger than mine. If there are three of us that are going to be riding in a car, he'll race for the back seat so he can show that he can be humbler than I can be. He thinks he's scoring points with God. God knows he's a thief trying to steal my points, right? He's a twit. By the way, if there's a purgatory, 
Vern and I are in a whole lot of trouble. <laughs> humility. C.S. Lewis said that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. It's not bad. Now, let me start out with this. Some of you guys are going to be tempted to blow off what I'm going to talk about this morning, this humility stuff. Please don't. This God-honoring humility is one of the most important keys to your life with God. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that pride is the one thing that will destroy your life with God because it is the complete anti-God state of mind. We think stuff like pride and humility are kind of little. God doesn't. Now, it's kind of fascinating to contrast the obsession with humility in both the Old and the New Covenants with the antipathy towards humility that you can find in the Bible world. God-like humility back then was just countercultural, just kind of like it is today. The philosophers in the time of the New Testament wrote a lot about the virtues. They loved writing about virtue, virtues like prudence and justice and temperance and courage. They were not fond of humility. They didn't like humility. They thought humility was for the servants and the slaves, not for men. They valued strength. They wanted respect. And fear works better than humility to get respect, right? Isn't that still the way people think? Even some of you guys probably. I mean, be honest. How many of you guys have humility as one of your life goals? But when you start reading in either the Old or the New Testament, the Old Covenant with God or our Covenant with God, humility is a big deal. In fact, it is not an option for a Jesus follower. It is a mandate. The Apostle Paul said, as God's chosen people, holy and loved by God, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, cover yourself with humility, gentleness, and patience. It's who we are to be and what we are to do. He says, be completely humble, completely humble, not a little bit. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Then here's the Apostle Peter. He says, all of you guys, clothe yourselves with humility. Cover yourself with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And guys, you do not want God opposing you, right? But we push back. This obsession with humility, we're kind of like, we kind of like to see other people who are humble, but we don't want to be humbled. It sounds painful. And if we do try to be humble on occasion, we want to make sure people notice it, like Vern, right? Instead of pursuing real humility, we're more interested in celebrating the self. It's cultural. It's not about humility. It's about accepting yourself, embracing yourself, celebrating yourself, loving yourself, which doesn't feel very humble, does it? We look in a mirror and we tell ourselves things like this. I'm strong, I'm capable, I'm brave, I'm happy. I'm beautiful, I'm confident, I'm unique. I'm a good person, I'm at peace with myself, we tell ourselves. Proud of myself, I believe in myself, I have the courage to be myself because I am awesome. I love myself, I deserve love, I'm fearless, I am enough, we tell ourselves. Which is kind of the opposite of humility, isn't it? 
Bottom line, guys, my reality, my reality is not what I tell myself. I am who God thinks I am. Anything else is delusional. Truth is, it kind of sounds like we lie to ourselves a lot, trying to get ourselves to believe it. Humility is about getting honest. Honest with yourself, honest with God, honest with and about those that we do life with. Humility is about embracing reality instead of the fantasy worlds we tend to live in. Humility is about taking my eyes off of me and recentering them on God. And I'm telling you, if you look at God, that can be a real pride killer, right? Taking our eyes off of ourselves, focusing on God. Have you ever done that? Isn't that what doing life with God, for God, God's way is all about? And I'm talking about the real God, the big G God, the God revealed to us in and through Jesus. We are Jesus followers. We're people who do life with God, wrapped up around God. Bottom line, even if you're not a Jesus follower yet, you were created, you were designed to do life with God. You were designed to live a life wrapped around God. That is life to the fullest. And we're talking about the real God, a God who is infinite, eternal, who always was and always will be. The only thing that always was and always will be. A God who's transcendent, a God who transcends creation. He's not part of creation. He's the creator. He's the only one who is omniscient, the only one who knows absolutely everything that is knowable. He is literally the only know-it-all, right? He's the only one who's actually omnipotent, who can do anything uh, that is doable. He is unstoppable. He is immovable. He's the only one who is perfectly, perfectly holy, perfectly good. It's easy to be prideful as long as you're not looking at God. If you look at the real God, come on. Now, flip it around. What would it look like to look at yourself through God's eyes? What if you took a ruthlessly honest look at yourself? To be perfectly honest, I am a bundle of paradoxes, and you are too. I'm a mess. And for some reason, I am valued, loved, and graced by God. I'm not a beautiful person in myself, though I do my best to portray that. I am often tempted to equivocate rather than speak the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I often want to be served rather than to serve, to take rather than to give. Sometimes I enjoy tearing down more than I like building up. You see, we view ourselves as fundamentally good people who occasionally mess up, when in reality, I don't just sin, I am a sinner, and I cannot defeat that dark side of me. We want to excuse ourselves, pretend that we're basically good and decent people. But have you ever been horrified by your own capacity for evil? Have you? Have you ever wondered how in the world could I have ever done such a thing? Even our best words and our best acts are sometimes tainted with self-interest. So we're all bundles of paradoxes, capable of good, 
but also capable of lying and cheating and stealing and fantasizing and using others and hating. We're so capable of pride, envy, anger, gluttony, laziness, greed, lust. If that's the case, don't you think humility is called for? Necessary? Listen, guys, a couple of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. This is the Apostle Paul, who is also a bundle of paradoxes. He put it like this. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you. I don't care what you think of me, he says. That's not my reality. I don't even judge myself. It doesn't even really matter what I think of me. I don't define my own reality. My conscience may be clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It is God who judges me. What really matters is what God thinks of me. What really matters is what God thinks of you. My reality is not what you think of me. My reality is not what I think of me. My reality is what God thinks of me. And God sees me as I really am. And he still loves me. Doesn't that call for some humility? See, we struggle accepting ourselves because we don't see ourselves as God, as God sees us. We're terrified that God actually sees behind our masks. God sees what paradoxes we are. So valuable and so messed up. So precious that he pursues us endlessly and yet sucked into a broken world that is so prone to evil. There's something good in us, the image of God. He put it there. The capacity to be God-like, that God loves. But there's also something bad in us that only God can purge. We're sinners, yet capable of selfless sacrifice, truth, morality, justice, peace, joy, love, and humility. One guy read, put it like this. He said, we, we act like gods when in comparison... When reality, compared to the glory of God, we're just ants jockeying for prestige. We're like candles. We boast about our light when in reality we're out in the broad daylight. Jesus shines us all. And then he says the only way, the only way to get over ourselves is to get into Christ. Huh. The only way to get over yourself is to get into God. And that'll bring a boatload of humility. C.S. Lewis called pride the greatest sin, the greatest evil. He called other sins like unchastity, immorality, anger, greed, drunkenness, flea bites by comparison to pride. Because he said pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride essentially tells God, I don't need you which is kind of the ultimate in stupidity. Pride means you don't know who God is, which means you don't get who you are, and you don't understand what the cross means. In fact, he said, maybe the only thing that can kill you spiritually is pride, because what pride will do is lead you to be unwilling to accept the grace of our God. A guy named Lewis Smedes is another one of my heroes. He says, pride in a spiritual sense is the refusal to let God be God. We try to take his place. It's to grab God's status for yourself, wishing to be your own creator, independent, relying on your own resources, which he says is the greatest delusion, the fantasy of fantasies. 
cosmic put on. He says, guys, there is a God and we're not it. There's a great and awesome God who created the heavens and the earth and we're not it. There is a God who knows everything, who understands everything, who controls all and we're not it. He is God. We're not. He's the great God. And by comparison, we're really, really little. See, guys, the solution to the problem of pride is not to think worse of yourself. That's what we try to do. The solution is just simply to think rightly of yourself. That's what humility is. It's just being honest. It's admitting and accepting who you really are. It's not beating yourself up, calling yourself names, focusing so tightly on your sins that you can never see God's grace. It's not about lying to yourself. It's not about working so hard that you can try to make yourself acceptable to God. It's about reality. God loves you just as you are. And he loves you too much to let you stay that way. He accepts us just as we are. But he also requires that we follow Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. It's not about self-improvement. It's about self-surrender. It's about trusting a God who loves us anyway, treasures us anyway, and who would go to unbelievable lengths to draw us close to him. Now, there's another piece to this humility stuff. Wouldn't you admit that if anyone had a right not to be humble, it would be God? Because he actually does know everything knowable. He actually can do everything that's doable. He actually is God's gift to the world. So how is it that God not only requires us to be humble, he models it? Imago Dei, we've been talking about, the image of God. How in the world could we ever serve a humble God without trying to be like him? I have a picture hanging in my office. My daughter gave me this picture. It's one of my favorite pictures of Jesus. On the left side is the Lamb of God. On the right side is the Lion. The Lion and the Lamb, same Jesus. Omnipotent on one hand, yet willing to die on the other hand. The Jesus of the cross and the Jesus of the resurrection. Isn't it a cool picture? We looked at this verse last week. It's mind-blowing. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, let me teach you, because I'm humble. Jesus says, I'm humble. God, I'm humble and I'm gentle. If you don't believe he was humble, look what he did. Take my yoke upon you and you're going to find rest for your souls. The only one who knows everything knowable, the only one who can do anything that is doable is humble. The Apostle Paul wrote those words, and Monica read them earlier, some of the most remarkable words that have ever been written. He said, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus, who being in very nature God, he was God, did not regard his equality with God as something to hang on to, but he emptied himself. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, no kidding, being made in human likeness like us, being found in appearance as a man. God humbled himself. God humbled himself, not only in becoming a man, but by becoming obedient to death, even the death on a cross, which is about as far as humility can go, right? 
Imagine, guys, if God was not humble. Imagine if the omnipotent, omniscient God was not a humble God. You'd be host. So God says, you too. You're my followers, you too. Be like me, he says. In the old covenant with God, the prophet Micah put it like this. He said, he, God, he has showed you what is good, O man. What does God require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. To be humble in your walk with your God. And if you're in the least bit of touch with reality, that's not going to be so hard to do. In fact, anything else is delusional. And I showed you earlier some of our instructions from the New Testament, which is our covenant with God in and through Jesus. It says, as God's chosen people... Holy, dearly love, clothe yourself, cover yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Because like father, like sons and daughters, right? It says be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Because that's how God is. This is Imago Dei stuff, image of God stuff. It's what we were meant to be. It says all of you guys, clothe yourself with humility. Because God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. Don't stand in opposition to God, guys. Okay, I've rambled on about long enough. Let me try to sum it up before I walk you through something. One of the best instruction guides to humility I've ever read. But here are the big ideas. Number one, humility is not about beating yourself up. It's about getting honest. Getting honest with yourself and honest with God. It's about getting real, not with your reality, but with God's reality, right? Number two, humility is not about thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less, keeping your eyes on God. See, as long as you have your eyes focused on God, you're not going to have a problem with humility, which means that the key to humility is not about trying to be more humble. It's about trying to be more God-centered, just live God-centered. And here's the deal. If you are humble, if you're God-centered, you will not only be kind and gentle, you will also be brave and fearless, which a genuinely humble man is like God. You cannot have a God-like humility without a God-like boldness, courage, and strength because it's about God, not me, right? And God's grace God's truth and God's grace. Which means that genuine God-honoring humility will always bring a lightness to your life. You're going to know you're a sinner, but you know that God's grace is bigger, infinitely bigger. Only the humble can laugh at themselves. Only the humble can laugh at just about everything else without a stitch of meanness. Because there is a lightness to doing life with God, for God, God's way together. Okay. Somewhere around you, you should have found a handout like this. It's got a lot of writing on both sides. We're going to call up the lights here for just a minute. I was told not to do this. I was told this is too much. It's going to wear you out, okay? But I'm not humble, and I just did it anyway, all right? This is some words that were written by Jeremy Taylor and in some instructions on how to do humility written about 400 years ago. 19 rules. 
and they are really, really good. So follow through this with me and then take this home and I'm going to encourage you to read it a couple of times this week so you really understand it. Number one, rule number one, don't think better of yourself because of any outward circumstance that happens to you. You're just human and you have nothing in yourself that merits worth except your choices. In other words, you're not better because you were lucky to be born in a good country with a good family. You're not better because you were born smart or strong or good looking. What really matters is the choices you make. Number two, humility does not consist of criticizing yourself, wearing ragged clothes and walking around submissively wherever you go. Humility consists in a realistic opinion of yourself, just that you're unworthy. Because none of us is worthy of God's grace. That's why it's called grace. Third, when you hold this opinion of yourself that you're unworthy, be content if others think the same. If you realize that you're not wise, why are you angry when someone else agrees? How cool would that be? Four, nurture a love to do good things in secret, concealed from the eyes of other, and therefore not highly esteemed because of them. Be content to go without praise. Don't be troubled when someone has slighted or undervalued you. That would revolutionize the church. By the way, I know the words are weird, but it was written 400 years ago. Okay, give them a break. Five, never be ashamed of your birth, your parents, your occupation, or your employment, or the lowly status of any of them. When there's an occasion to speak about them to others, don't be shy, don't be embarrassed. <clears throat> speak readily with an indifference as to how they will regard you. Any of you guys ashamed of your birth, your parents, your occupation? Remember, it's only the choices you make that matter, guys. Sixth, never say anything directly or indirectly that'll provoke praise or compliments from others. Don't let your praise be the intended end of what you say. He's going to say, give out a lot of praise. That's God honoring. But don't praise others so they'll praise you back. You ever done that? Seven, when you do receive praise for something that you have done, be indifferent. Return it to God. Reflect it back to God, who's the giver of the gift, the blesser of the action, the aid of the project, because whatever you have and whatever you can do is his gift, right? Number eight, make a good name for yourself by being a person of virtue and humility. It's a benefit of others, for others, who hear of you to hear good things about you. As a model, they could use your humility to their advantage. We're supposed to be the light of the world, salt of the earth, pointing people to Jesus, right? Number nine, do not take pride in any praise given to you, which is hard not to. Rejoice in the God who gives gifts others can see in you, but let it be mixed with a holy respect so that this good does not turn into evil. Number 10 is a good one. Just like the sixth rule, don't ask others about your faults so others will tell you about your good qualities. Some speak lowly of themselves in order to make others give an account of their goodness. You ever do that? Do you ever dish yourself so others will praise you? 11, when you are slighted by someone or feel undervalued, don't harbor a secret anger supposing that you actually deserved praise or they overlooked your value or they neglected to praise you because of their envy. Even if someone slights you, he says, don't obsess over it. 
12, don't entertain any of the devil's whispers of pride. Some people spend their times dreaming of greatness, envisioning theaters full of people applauding them, imagining themselves giving engaging speeches, fantasizing about great wealth. Been there, done that, still battle that. All of this is nothing but the fumes of pride exposing their heart's true wishes. Thirteen, do take an active part in praising others. Praise people a lot, guys, entertaining their good with delight. I love this part. In no way should you give in to the desire to disparage anyone or lessen their praise or make an objection. Some of us are really bad at praising others and meaning it. We need to do better. Fourteen, this is hard. Be content when you see or hear that others are doing well in their jobs with their income even when you're not. In the same manner, be content when someone else's work is approved and yours is not. That's hard, isn't it? I'll read about preachers with bigger reputations, bigger churches, and I'll start feeling twinges of jealousy. That is not God-honoring. Fifteen, never compare yourself with others unless it be to advance your impression of them and lower your impression of yourself. You ever compare yourself with people just to show that you're better? He says, the truly humble will not only look admirably at the strengths of others, but they will look with great forgiveness upon the weaknesses of others. How different would that be? Magnanimity. Sixteen, do not constantly try to excuse your mistakes. If you've made a mistake, an oversight, an indiscretion, just confess it. For virtue scorns a lie for its cover. And if you're not guilty, unless it's scandalous, don't be so concerned to change everyone's opinion about the matter. That was hard. Seventeen, this is one that I've stewed on for decades. Give God thanks for every weakness, fault, and imperfection you have. Thank Him. And I think He's right if you understand Him right, and here's why. He says, accept it as a favor of God, an instrument to resist your pride and nurse your humility. Maybe God doesn't fix us fast because he wants us to remember that it's all grace, right? Remember that if God has chosen to shrink your swelling pride, he's made it easier for you to enter through the narrow way. So maybe the reason God lets me struggle with my sin is to keep me humble because without humility, I'm not going to make it. Eighteen, don't expose others' weaknesses in order to make them feel less able than you. Neither should you think on your superior skill with any delight or use it to set yourself above another person. That's what we do. And nineteen, remember that what is most important to God is that we submit ourselves and all that we have to Him. No kidding. This requires that we be willing to endure whatever His will brings us and to be content in whatever state we're in and to be ready for every change. This is a reading that I have used for a long, long time to remind myself and to remind others who we're supposed to be before God. I would encourage you not to leave it on your seat, but to take it home. And a couple of times this week, read it until it makes sense to you makes a world of difference in who you are spiritually before God. It's worth the effort, guys. Okay? A little homework assignment. 
We're going to move to a time of the Lord's Supper. I've been talking about humility, and I've said that this is imago Dei stuff, image of God stuff. We serve a humble God. God who knows everything, a God can do everything. Took a shape like us, didn't have to, because he loved us. Went to a cross for us, didn't have to, because he loves us. Demonstrates that kind of humility. If God were not humble, we'd be host. Because he is, we love him. We love him back, right? And that's what this Lord's Supper is all about. We remember what he did for us and we give him our thanks. It's a time of gratitude. So in a moment, I'm going to invite you to the tables around the room. You'll find that little piece of bread which represents his body broken for you. You'll find that little spot of juice which represents Jesus' blood shed for you. We drink that and we say thank you because you took my place. Because you died for me, I can live with you, right? Also at these tables, you're going to find an offering box. That's where those who call Capital City their home, that's where we give our first part back to God. It's an act of worship. You'll also see a white bucket. It's called a generous bucket. And if you have a dollar or two that you want to drop in that generous bucket, every dollar that goes in there will just be used to love on people who are hurting. Okay? And if you have a decision to make about Jesus, let's talk. I'm going to sit right up here during this part of the service. I'm going to sit right up here at the end of the service. Let's chat. There's an elder praying for you in that prayer room. Go back and talk to him. If you need to talk about Jesus making the king your life, that's where life starts, guys. Let's talk. If you want to make Capital City your home, let's talk. Let's pray. Father, for your humility in Jesus, we give you thanks. For your grace in Jesus, we give you thanks. And now we want to honor you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. You guys are welcome.
you're here today with us, worshiping with us. Uh, we, we think that this is a pretty big deal, and we celebrate it every week, and we're glad that you're here. 
And uh, welcome. Thanks for being here with us today. I want to bring your attention to just a few things that would be valuable for us as a family to talk about just real quick. Uh, first of all, we want to remind you of our Church Center app. Now, if you're new around here or maybe you've been around for a while, but you'd like to know how to get a little bit better connected, if you'll go to your app store on your phone, whether that's an Android or iPhone, it doesn't matter, look up Church Center app. You download that app. It's very simple, and you it's very intuitive. As you open it up, it'll set you up to find this specific church, get connected with us. Anytime we talk about signups, anytime we talk about uh, things that are going on, events and announcements, you can find it all within that app. You can even give through that app. It's a great resource and a great tool. We don't talk about it very often, so we want to just bring that back to your attention. It's a good thing. This Friday, we're having something that we call block party. This means that you live on our block and you're welcome and invited. All right, if you're here, you're welcome. So Friday night, we're having a cookout from 6 to 8 p.m. It'll be back at the pavilion. Uh, you're welcome to come. You're welcome to bring friends. We'd love to, to just be able to get together as a family, have a dinner. That also should remind you that today we're having a cookout. It's summer, so it's like every other day we're having cookouts, okay? So today we're having a cookout. And you may notice when you leave that it's raining. And that's okay because it's supposed to be done before we eat, all right? So go home. Hang out, do whatever you're going to do for an hour. Go shop at wherever, all right? And then come back at noon, 12, 15. We'll be serving food back here behind the pavilion. It should be dry. Everything should be good for that as well. And for our summer staycations next week, we're going to be uh, starting what we're calling Red, White, and Shoe, all right? And so all that is is that we're going to be gathering shoes uh, to be able to, as our nudge for the month of July, to be able to give to local school systems to help kids out and make sure they have some nice shoes whenever they start the new school year, all right? So that's something that we do every year, partner with the local school systems. It's a good deal. So uh, start collecting, start thinking through buying shoes for kids to be able to bring in. It'd be a good, good thing. All right, now, we have done this series called Remastered. It's part of a three-part series that we've done uh, called Believe, looking at the things that we believe, the things that we are, uh, what was the second part? The things that we, we do. do. And then the third part was the things that we are becoming, all right? So we've been talking about these fruit of the spirit, and there's been some big ideas that have come out of that. All right, so, so stuff like this. These fruit of the spirit, the thing that we've been looking at, are for everyone. Sometimes we look at fruit of the spirit like, like we're just trying to pick and choose the ones that we're good at, and it's not true. They're all for all of us. They, they include all of us, right? So that's been the big idea. We've also seen this. It's, it's very counterintuitive, very counterculture. It's very challenging. In fact, the closer we got to looking at these fruit of the spirit, the more we realized how much we fall short. And so we recognize that these are fruit of the spirit, not the fruit of the self. And so we need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to be able to do and to accomplish these things. We've also recognized, as Doc talked about this morning, that this is image of God's stuff. This isn't God just arbitrarily thinking through the things that he wants us to be. This is stuff that's naturally flowing out of who he is. The fruit of the spirit reveal his heart, his character, and as we are called to be his sons and daughters, that we would have that same character taking place in us by the Holy Spirit coming and living and working with us. And as hard as all these things are, we actually believe that a pursuit of the fruit of the spirit, a pursuit of a spirit-led life will actually make your life better. We really do. Guys, uh, there's another little card next to you. Again, both of these are to be taken home. This one's the smaller card. And it lists the different virtues that we have focused on over the last 10 weeks. Here's the deal. If you're just as loving today as you were 10 years ago, then you've wasted 10 years. God is trying to make us more loving and more patient and more kind and better and more humble, all of these things. How are you doing? 
Please take the time to look at these things that we've been talking about the last 10, last 10 weeks and then just ask yourself, how am I doing? If one of these things is absent, then you're fighting the Holy Spirit because He's trying to build it in you, right? And be more receptive. Let God build you into the person that He meant you to be. That's real life. That's life to the fullest. Now, here's one of the deals that, we've been, that I've been fiddling with when we talk about where we're going next. I've been focusing a whole lot on God's truth the last couple of years, and I've done that intentionally. We live in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile to the Christian faith, and I want bold, robust Christians where you stand tall and you smile and you live lightly in a world that is oftentimes aggressive against us and what we believe and what we stand for. You need to be anchored hard in God's truth. It's something that we can be proud of. We stand tall in. But we're supposed to be a truth, a, a church that betrays two things, truth and grace, truth and grace. If you've got to our cornerstone out there under our porch, you'll see a place of truth and grace. It's the way Jesus was. It's the way we want to be. We focused really, really hard on truth. It's time for us to really take a deep dive back into grace. And that's where we're going to be going for the next few weeks. All right, so... Uh, interesting thing, if you think through how we would go about talking about grace, and as we anticipate this next sermon, Doc and I are really excited about it because it's going to be a unique perspective. Uh, we're going to go some places that you probably wouldn't expect uh, in the context of the series, and I don't even want to give you any explanation of what that means, all right? I want you to kind of anticipate and, and, and look forward to uh, where exactly we're going to go. I think we might catch you off guard a little bit with the conversations of grace that we're going to be having. So we'll be kicking that off next week. We would love for you to be here and to be a participant of that because we believe that grace is just as important as truth. Uh, they, they're married together, the fullness of both found in the person of Jesus Christ, and we're going to focus in on that, all right? But as of now, you have to leave. All right, so feel free. If you need to stand in the foyer, that's fine because it's raining, but you got to get out of here. <laughs>